A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My very first novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is coming out on the 11th of February 2021. Marion Keyes says Insatiable is extremely funny, touching and wonderfully refreshing on women and sexual desire. There's a limited number of special signed editions available from Waterstones for Your Book listeners. Huge thanks to everyone who has already pre-ordered. It's the very best way for you to support the podcast. Today's guest is a beloved writer and a very old friend of mine. She's famous for her food writing, but her passion for reading informs every aspect of her work. Ella Risbridge's book, Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For, is filled with stories, not just about food. And she's currently writing her first children's novel. We talked about the weirdness of Mary Wesley, poems that feed the soul, and why Ella still has my copy of Brother of the More Famous Jack. Thank you so much for positioning yourself right beside your bookshelves. I thought it would be useful because I also made a lot of notes because I forget. I get so stressed. People say, what what books have you read? And I think, nothing. I've never read a book. <laughs> and I think also because, well, I used to... Um, I used to think that I had both very, very highbrow and very, very lowbrow taste. And uh, honestly, this year I just have lowbrow taste. I just read romances now, romances and thrillers. I've written down some books from when I used to read other kinds of books. We just interviewed Patrick Frayne and he was talking about his love of fantasy and sci-fi and needing to escape into worlds. And that's exactly how I feel. I want to go and like escape into a world and cosplay, but... I want it to be in like a Jill Mansell, beautiful Cotswolds village. I feel like we should talk a lot about Jill Mansell in this. I think we've got an hour, but I expect most of it will just be talking about Jill Mansell. <laughs> I just love her. So I don't know if you've been asked this a lot before, but I would love to know the first book you read that had a real like feast in it or a description of food that just stayed with you. Um, no one's asked me before to start with. And... I can't remember really, because I got into food writing through such a roundabout way. Like I never intended to write a cookbook. I never intended to write about food at all. That was never the plan. I was going to be sort of a big glamorous novelist. And so I don't think I was paying very much attention. I wasn't like a very foodie kid, you know? So I've just written this book for Nosy Crow, which is for kids, which is coming out next year, called The Secret Detectives, which is kind of like a kind of like a murder mystery prequel to The Secret Garden. Oh, wow. Set on a boat. It's been very exciting. But that's about, I don't know, I assume you've read The Secret Garden, Daisy. But I've 
remember it vaguely. I'm trying to remember what Mary ate, and I just remember her being very bad tempered and hating everything. She doesn't like very much. She eats a lot of por it's porridge that she has to eat, and she doesn't want to eat it for the first half of the book. But first bit, and what made me write this the uh, book that's coming out next year for kids is she's alone in this house where her parents have died, the servants have all died. The dinner party guests have fled in the middle of a dinner party because the cholera has come to the house and she's just wandering around this abandoned dinner party eating little morsels off people off dead people's plates and then she uh, passes out drunk with a snake and that's the beginning of uh, beloved children's club at the secret garden which people forget so i think i never really was thinking about food because obviously you've got your enid blytons and you've got you know everybody in children's books always eating some clotted cream and things i think because i wasn't very interested in food until I was sort of 20 really, 2021. 20, it just sort of just glazed over the same way settings do. I don't really have very good memory for, I don't have like, I'm not a very visual reader. I don't really picture things. It's like you've got something in, you said something about fan casting, anybody casting, I thought no idea. People are always asking me about fan casting things. Um, and I just never ever know. It's like, oh, that guy who was in, I think he's probably got a, a face of some kind. I'm not a particularly visual reader. But it's all I about think that's so interesting because I really struggle with having any kind of real visual imagination and so on. It's a, f a feeling, a bit like a dream. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you. Um, same, <laughs> same, exactly, Daisy. It's like a dream, and then you're trying to, like, you're like, well, he kind of had a face, I guess, and it was kind of like old but also young. Yes, and he had all of time and all of space. But that sense of something nebulous, and it's, it is visual, but it is a feeling, and you couldn't possibly, even when if it's I, right in front of you, it'd be really hard to, to describe and to lay out. Yeah, when I'm writing, if I get it right, on a good day of writing, there's a sense of visual, like, oh, I'm there. But it, again, it's like a dream. It's not like a photograph. I never read a book and picture things. Objects I sometimes picture. Have you read the Cadillac Chronicles? Yes, oh, they were of my lockdown book. They're perfect. I've written them in big letters to talk about. Um, Rupert's wife Zoe and her underwear her jade green underwear is described in very clear detail I can see that and I can see her dressing table very clearly but like I'm remembering objects and I don't I don't know how some things translate into images in my brain but most don't I think what Elizabeth Jane Howard does so brilliantly is she makes everything in that book so tangible especially through the children being of an age and at a time when those objects are really really important like um is it clary going antique shopping um with i think Polly. Rupert with and i think she chooses like a, a writing table or a desk for polly oh yes the little the little bay's writing table it's got little drawers yes yes i know exactly what you mean and also when she and polly are going shopping going around the junk shops and then to the pet shop and Polly, who's got such a beautiful eye for mm. colour, chooses these two very cracked Delft, cand Delft candlesticks. And the shopkeeper is annoyed because he can see they're of very good quality, but they're cracked. And it's this sense of that this child has this exquisite taste that she doesn't really know what to do with. I can see those candlesticks very clearly. But then I think Elizabeth Jane Howard is so good at stuff. She's like a doll's house, you know? which is like you can open the front and you can see all the little people and all the little things and you can go upstairs and, you know, there's, you know, the Duchy doing something else and there's a brig in his study and, you know, Rupert and Zoe are having a fight and all the things are happening in all the different rooms. What I love so much about her books is she is astonishingly fair and there is the same level of detail and attention and dimension 
in every single one of those rooms. Yes, and to people as well, because you think it's going to be about the children and then you think it's going to be about the adults. Because if you're, I don't know, you know how in Atonement, have you read mm. Atonement? Yeah. You know how you start off thinking it's going to be a really good book about a girl putting on a play and it turns out to be a very dull grown-ups book about morals? About the war. <laughs> oh my Honestly, oh. so I read, the, I read Atonement when it first came out when I was maybe 10, 10 or 11, because my parents had no rules there were no like you can read this you can't read that and my mum and her being like oh gosh have you been reading that I mean yeah I skimmed over all the parts in the library all the parts with the note and all the part with the wall but I remember feeling so cheated because for the first well, the first couple of chapters it's just about this girl who has written what sounds like a fantastic play about a knight and a duke and it's like Bryony who's trying to put on this play and her cousins won't cooperate. And there's all this like grown up stuff happening behind the scenes. And obviously it's a literary device. But when you yourself are 10, you're just like, oh, thank goodness. A good detailed book about someone who understands my struggle in trying to put on a play where my sisters won't cooperate. I am certain you understand this impulse. I know you're very busy and you've got a lot on, but please write a whole Bryony story. Please take the beginning of Atonement and make that the whole novel. And I would love it that. It deserves to be a book about a small small girl just trying so hard to get the play right. I feel, I feel very strongly about Bryony. This is an awful thing to say, but I think about that a lot, um, about the bell jar. And you know her very yes. glamorous friend in the beginning and they're all up on the roof having a lovely time. Is she called Tinsley? Or she got one of those amazing kind of, you know, jingly, I only Something American like lines. that, yeah. It's a long time since I read The Bell Jar, but yes. And I remember that, like, mental illness, very important, very worthy considerations, very heavy book, and lots going on. I want that story. I want to know about the girl at the party and the roof having a lovely time Sarah making magazines. I want Manning to write it. I want Sarah Manning to write the story of that gl- the glamorous girl on the roof. That would be wonderful like think of unsticky but in 50s new york i'm not sure that we've talked about unsticky on the podcast and it's so odd because there aren't many things that are you know cult classics but that really was that i don't i did feel as though when it was published it did not do as well as it deserved to but everyone i know and love everyone whose taste i respect acknowledges that unsticky is Seminal, which is an unfortunate word to use. Or <laughs> that particular book. It's just so good. Um, I actually only read it last year, two years ago. I read it because Caroline O'Donoghue was reading it for Sentimental Garbage and just put it into my hands. Like Back in the days when you go to other people's houses and I was at her house for some reason. We worked together quite a lot and we were working and she just said, I think you should read this. And I just went and sat on a sofa and just read all of Unsticky. I didn't move. I was like, I can't go home. I must just sit here and understand everything about this world. And did you feel, because I think I read it when um, I, it was glamorous times. It was my early days at Bliss. The most glamorous job anyone's ever had, Daisy. (laughs) There was a party for Unsticky at the Groucho Club and we got free books. I mean, now, you know, I think me and you both like, people should have bought that book. Maybe it was a proof. Maybe it was like a pre-publication party. Um, but being in the the end of days in the magazine world, where there was still a tiny, tiny bit of money for the parties and splashes of glamour, but just being so broke and everything being so great. And also the way that she writes so well about what it was like to be an East London oh wanker in the 2008. Money. The money. 
Unsticky is so good for so many things, not least the sex, but the money in Unsticky, I just like wanted to hug it to my chest and be like, you know, when he goes through her money, <laughs> can't even talk about it, Daisy, when he's like helping her do her bills and he's like, you have to sort out your financial situation. Greatest romance of all time. Ter it both like thrills and terrifies me, which I think all good erotic novels should do, right? But this is the part where they're going through all the <laughs> bad spending habits. Maybe Unsticky is the bell jar, is the bell jar book we're both wishing for. Maybe just straight up Unsticky, because it's got like, it's not, it's not unnuanced in terms of mental health. And that she is trapped and, you know, it's not her, that's what you do in, in that world where you're like, if I just keep working really, 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 really hard, I'll get some money eventually. And then the showdown and the, well, no, the only way all of these people can afford to work in publishing is they've got rich boyfriends and rich dads. How is Grace different? Honestly, I find it so important. Maybe it should just be mandatory reading. Like this sense of like looking at people's, how do people afford to live? And the answer is almost always, if someone's life looks too good to be true, it's almost always funded by rich dad, rich boyfriend, or, and I think most commonly with people I know, they're working a very boring and unglamorous job at the same time. And like, we don't talk enough about how kind of creative lives and lives in the publishing world and kind of, Lots of these things depend on you doing boring copywriting after work or, you know, waitressing. And, we talk, and I, I, think, I think we talk more about things like, oh, she works in a bar or she's a waitress part time than we do about sometimes people just do boring admin work between 7 and 10 p.m. in order to kind of live a life that looks like other people's. I hope I'm making sense does and I do think that's interesting in the way that creative work we fetishize it and also I think it can be a real source of martyrdom and it's interesting because at the moment I am most mornings at least I try to join the London writing salon which is a a great thing and it came out um I think it's during the first lockdown and it's a zoom call and there are three a day and there's a sort of supposed to be first thing in the morning in London, um, New York and Los Angeles, glamorously. But um, some people do all three and it's just, you're all together on Zoom, you have a brief chat about what you're doing and then a focused writing hour and it's about 200 of you writing in silence for an hour. And I feel obliged, and it's Neil Gaiman's rule about you can write or you can sit and do nothing, but you've got to keep your ass in the chair. I don't think he's an ass. Um, yeah, I really, I really do need that. I'm so bad. I will send you the link. It's really, really great. But, um, you know, there's a real mix of people who write all day long because they have to, and that's sort of how they keep, you know, the roof over their head. But lots of people as well who are writing because they don't have a creative outlet in their sort of main work or whatever you want to call it. And I think we talk so often about the um, Elizabeth Gilbert's very good on this, the danger of what happens when your passion and the thing you love becomes the thing that pays the bills or some of the bills yes. and there is a real kind of oh you know I'm off to do my art and people are a bit weird and snobby about if your job is their hobby but also the flip side of it is that you might be sort of not quite that their job is your hobby and side hustle isn't quite the right word it's like the opposite of a side hustle. I'm, I get very wary of saying saying anything negative about my job when it is the only job I can do and I think the best job in the world which is to say sit in my house and I make things up which is very nice like it's a lovely job but there is that sense of like 
just got to write it, just got to put words on the page and they're not very good. And it's so awful writing words you know aren't very good. And you're just going to push through until the end and you're thinking, all this. can you tell I'm right at the end of a new manuscript? I'm right at the end of a new project. I'm at the face where I'm just every word gets me closer to that finish line. They're all awful. All the words are awful. Are there any writers that you find inspiring in that way, in that being that you have to go through a bad first draft to get to the good second draft? I think what I tend to find inspiring, and this is a very boring answer, is very, very good, very ambitious work that makes me think I could, I need to do more. I need to try harder. I need to, because I think, as you were just saying, I also have a tendency to vamp for a bit. And then when you read a book that is no vamping, then when you read a book that is just like clear-sighted, firm, brisk prose. So it's a bit of a weird one, but James Rebanks is English pastoral, sorry, English pastoral. So I just read that one. And oh my God, it's just so crisp and clean and there's no vamping and there's no wasted words and it just does the job says what it's going to do and then it does it all the way to the end and is then it it's a novel no it's not a novel it's non-fiction it's about um uh the rebanks's farm racy gill in cumbria and about farming and nature and the ways we've taught people to farm and the ways we've taught people to consume food and to buy food and this kind of disconnect that has happened between the land and the people who work the land and the people who buy the food and i find it unbelievably inspiring both to be a better person and a better writer really because there's no fluff there's no wooliness it's just clear thinking expressed in very beautiful precise prose and that's what I want to do really I want to express clear ideas that are useful it's kind of that William Morris thing about have nothing in your home that you don't believe to be beautiful or know to be useful it's like have nothing in your prose that you do not believe to be beautiful or know to be useful except obviously it's got to be both useful and beautiful. And I think that's why, in some ways, I think that's why I've ended up with cookbooks really is, is this sense of usefulness. I like writing to be useful and I find it much harder to be useful in fiction. I suppose the nature of fiction is the uses are, are broader and they're not as, as crystal clear or, you know, to entertain is, that's a much broader function. It is. And I think to say something... I think there are lots and lots of novels that say something useful about the human condition or about what it is to be alive. I think particularly there's lots and lots of poets who I find very useful, but I myself do not quite feel confident enough in my own fiction skills to be sure that what I'm saying in fiction at this point is useful, or at least I didn't when I started, when I was writing Midnight Chicken. And I think I'll get, I think I'll get to a point where I feel like I can be useful in fiction. But for now, I actually, having said that, my children's book that's coming out, I've tried very hard to write a book that does something, says something worth saying about stories and the stories we tell and who gets to tell them and who gets believed and what. And so I've tried to do something useful there. Lots of poets, I, as I say, I think are beautiful and useful. Tell Ada, me about your useful poets. Ada Limon, have you read any of her? Sadly, no. Daisy, you will love her. You in particular will really love her. Um, she has a poem about lady horses, about their hearts going 100 miles an hour, which is just incredible. I will send you, send you some good ones. Who else is fantastically useful? Hera Lindsay Bird, I find terribly useful. I almost never say a sentence which doesn't have a Hera Lindsay Bird line in it. Kava Akbar, also incredibly useful. Richard Scott, Kaya Chingonyi, Morgan Parker. 
just poets who crystallize. Ellen Bass is another one, uh, Gabrielle Calvacaresi. Poets that make you feel, yes, that's it, that's the thing. That's the thing I wanted to say. There's a poem by Gabrielle Calvacaresi called something like B52 Hammond Organ, which I, I'm probably going about to dreadfully misquote, which is about, starts the days you don't, I, the days you wake up and don't want to kill yourself are extraordinary. And it's got this line, I am the sun-filled god of love. And it's about how people who've never felt suicidal don't know how incredible it is to wake up and not want to kill yourself. This sense of like, oh my god, anything is possible. And bright blue fucking sneakers is the line, another line. And I really, anyone listening should go and look it up. It's on the New Yorker, but it's a great poem. And it just sums up this feeling in you know, a dozen lines, maybe less, maybe a few more, this feeling of aliveness that I have not seen articulated anywhere else. Same with Hira Lindsay Bird, there's a Kava Akbar poem called For You I've Started Sleeping, which sums up the whole thing of being in love and being alive. And so I think with poets there's this sense of utility in that they are articulating something that I can't myself articulate, which I guess is the point of all writing, but I think it's particularly crystallised in poets. Oh, Marie Howe, that's another one. There's another one everyone should look up. I suppose there's that urgency, isn't there? That they're, you know, writing almost as a prescription for people who need something and need it quick. Yeah, I think there's that sense of something to hang on to, something to, like the door in Titanic, you know? Something you can really get on, get on top of and float <laughs> for a bit. Solid purchase. <laughs> Um, I keep looking at the Mary Wesley behind you, um, and I love her. And I know everyone knows the chamomile lawn, but I feel like she's due a renaissance. Are they yours? Oh my God. My greatest dream is to be asked to write, like, write a new introduction for a Mary Wesley. They're just so good. I mean, I've got a big one upstairs. So, her children's books. Have you ever read any of her children's books? Oh, I didn't know she had written children's books. Daisy, she's got three, and they're absolutely horrible. One is about a little girl who falls in love with a ghost. The ghost is, the ghost is a grown man in a hat. <laughs> She's a little girl and they fall in like clear romantic love. And it's sort of implied that she will also become a ghost and live there with him. It's the oddest book. It really got into mind. And I've never read Speaking Terms, which is the middle one in this collection. But the last one is The Sixth Seal, which is about the apocalypse. It's about this thing that has happened, which I think is clearly nuclear, that has made the rain come down in different colours and it's dissolved everybody down to their hair and teeth, apart from some people who are in the basement of a hotel. One of the people in the basement of the hotel is a little girl, a pig breeder, and she's got her pig with her the whole time. It is so weird and so magic. Anyway, I think about them all the time. Very weird book. Wow. Um, I was not expecting that. No, right? It's a... Uh, Oh, I just love Mary Wesley. Um, Camomile Lawn, obviously. Do you know what's it called? Harnessing Peacocks, which has yes. got the single best blurb of anything I've ever read. It's something like, she had two, two talents in life, cooking and making love, and these she ex exercised with dignity in private and for profit. <laughs> and you're just like, tell me, I want to know everything about this woman's life. And it's about how she... It's a kind of quite almost Jill Mansley premise, you know, in that she leaves her, she's thrown out by, she leaves her family home because she gets pregnant very young and unmarried. And then she has to move to Cornwall with her kid and start a new life, which is such a Jill Mansell 
premise. I'd not thought of that, but you're so right. And I think that's how any story is interesting, isn't it? You, you take, you just need to take someone from their known. I think the books I love the most, it's a world where someone is new to it, as you are, and you're stumbling alongside them. I don't think I only love those books, but like, because, I mean, the Cazalettes are not that, and I guess the Secret Garden's also that. Do you know what I did want to talk about, though? What I really wanted to talk about on this podcast, and I know you love this book because you gave it to me, and you gave it to me about seven years ago. I believe I still have your copy. I'm confessing to this now because uh, it's been a long time, and it's Brother of the More Famous Jack. Oh, that's where that went. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure this may be your copy or I may have given away your copy to somebody else and then had to buy a new one. I love that it is travelling, travelling like a horn player. Yeah, I don't think this is your copy. I think I gave your copy to Caroline and somebody else gave me theirs. Anyway, the point is, you said in the email when we were setting up this podcast that it would be useful to talk about the best book someone's ever given you. I was like, this is extremely convenient because <gasps> the best book anyone's ever given me is Brother of the Four Famous Jack by Barbara Trepido which Daisy Buchanan gave me in Greenwich in maybe 2014, 2013, 2014. That sounds about right. Oh, I feel quite... A million years ago, my favourite book, probably, or at least in my top three. And I remember we were having a conversation about something completely different. It hadn't even come up in conversation. And you just said, suddenly, out of nowhere, I think you just saw it on your shelf. Like, do you know Brother of the More Famous Jack? And I said no and I was if it was 2013 which sounds about right I was 21 and you were just like and you were just one of the most glamorous people I'd ever met we were in your flat which was glamorous because oh. it was a glamorous house I just want and to just make it very clear that right now I've been for a run um and I have not washed myself and the lighting in here is horrible everything's very great and I'm in this sort of ironic neon Margate granny cardigan which sort of looks okay in real life but I've never been less glam and Ella is in the most beautiful cream sweater with um sexy intellectual lady glasses and fabulous um a tousled well, side pony I mean at this point I would like to say that up until we're recording this at 12 and at 11.56, I was still wearing pyjamas with little hedgehogs all over. So, you know, we're all, we're all doing our best. But you just said to me in the middle of a sentence, we were talking about something completely different. Do you know the brother of the more famous Jack? And I remember thinking, I have no idea what is about to happen. And you just took it off your shelf and just said, take it home and read it. And I've read it. I don't even know how many times. It's the best book in the world. I wanted to talk about that because it was you who said you must read it. You know, Barbara Trepido has been on this podcast. Did you just die of love? We went round to her house in Oxford and it was it was too much. It was I did. But also she talked at length about Mary Wesley as a contemporary of hers and said and did some quite funny Mary Wesley impressions and said that Mary Wesley really sort of fancied herself as a kind of, you know, outrageous sex bomb but she was actually quite shy and you know did it in the novel but couldn't quite pull it off in real life I think you get that impression though there is a sort of whenever Mary Wesley says anything too sexy you can see her being a bit like mm, I did do it <laughs> we'll see now <laughs> you know whenever she says anything a bit risque you can feel her there's a there's a kind of inner prudishness which there isn't with Brother of the More Famous Jack yes it is there a sexy is, book it's a very I mean it's the sexiest book of all time the question is Daisy 
now we're finally talking about this after I stole your copy of this book many years ago and never ever returned it. I love that it's taken you what six seven years to read I know that's not true but that's how <laughs> I know I mean I read it instantly and then just was just like well it's my book now and you know when you love a book so much that you can't actually bring yourself to admit that anyone but you has ever read it. Yes. I think that happened and I was like well Daisy can't have actually read this book because it's mine. It's mine and the only person who's ever read it is me and really it's taken me the best part of a decade to admit that someone else could have read it and felt the same. Logically you'd think well if if she knew what this was there's no way she would have given it away. She wouldn't have given it away. Who would give it away? But the real question is Jonathan or Roger? Oh, I think it's um, it's got to be Jonathan, hasn't it, really? Caroline and I have a theory that people are either obviously Roger or obviously Jonathan. Caroline's an obviously Jonathan. I'm an obviously Roger. Obviously. So pretentious and he plays the violin <laughs> and he ignores her and it's horrible to her. And Jonathan, who just loves her and is nice and is mean as well. But like, she never stops loving Roger. Barbara, if I may call her that, said something really interesting about how Jonathan throughout that book is like always feet first. He's a feeler and he goes in from the ground up and like when they're in the garden. And I think that um, because it's about Catherine falling in love with all of the Goldmans and Jonathan is the most Goldman-y Goldman. He is the most Goldman-y Goldman. I just know that were I Catherine, I too would have fallen for Roger first and then been like, I might, I could love Jonathan too. The thing about this book is it feels real because none of it feels very, there's no sort of structure to it. In that it's just like the first half of the book is her aged 18 meeting the Goldmans. Then there's four chapters, which encompass a sort of 10 years of her life in which she falls in love with a fascist who is very argumentative and sometimes violent and buys her a mink coat and tries to convince her to have an abortion. And he's got children he ignores and seems to dislike very much. And then that's over in a very traumatic way but at the same time life goes on and she goes back to England and everyone's aged but they're still there. In other books there would be some great symbolism to the fact that she goes to Italy and falls in love with this fascist. It would be like the whole novel would be about Catherine trying to get to Italy. No, it's just one of those things that happens sometimes is that you go to Italy and fall in love with a frightening fascist. Oh, but so the I reread Brother of the More Famous Jack in lockdown and it's one of those books that I really have to ration because if I reread it as much as I'd want to I, that it is just all I would read <laughs> it's like oh, back I am again here I've forgotten the Michelle bit but also I remember initially not really understanding it I feel like you fool what do you see in this guy and this time around I totally got it I'm like he's a bad man on every level but oh boy <laughs> he's just so passionate and he's like and also he's just the opposite of the goldmans in every way and also i have a side note separate fantasy about you know the couple that she lives with briefly when she first gets to rome and she knows they're very glamorous and it's just all like yes. smoking in the bath and having arguments and champagne and parties and booze they have a huge bathroom that's filled with like big potted plants and it's all quite steamy and people are always like going in and out and having chats and i'm like that's what I want. No, I think it's, I've got plants in my bathroom now and I think it's quite a lot to do with trying to be <laughs> trying to be a steamy, steamy woman smoking in the bath. I don't smoke, and uh, but nonetheless, and I don't smoke and I don't think I'd really like people just coming in to chat to me when I was in the bath. No. But nonetheless, it's a very glamorous image. I really, I like the idea of it. And then I think, oh, smoking in the bath is a bit rank. It's so smoky. It'd be so awful. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We'll be back to Ella soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, Party of the Century by Deborah Davis. It's 1966 and Truman Capote is wealthy and restless. In Cold Blood has been a publishing sensation and he doesn't know what to do next, so he plans the ball to end all balls. This is a giddy, thrilling social history. There's money, manipulation, gossip, sex, rage and dresses to die for. There is enough party in this book to get you through a party for a year. In fact, there's more fun to be had between the pages than you'd ever find at any New Year's Eve party. Party of the Century is published by Wiley and out now. Now, back to Ella. What do you think of the rest of the Barbara Cabrillo books? What do you think of E.G.? Uh, the Travelling Horn Player. Is The Travelling Horn Player, that's the sequel? Yes, it's sort of a sequel in that Jonathan, Jonathan is in it. But then all her books, all her books are linked up, which I find the most satisfying thing about Barbara mm. Trevino. Mary that, Wesley does that too. Yes, she does. I just love it. I just love the thing of being like, do you know who else does it? Jacqueline Wilson. Oh, she does, doesn't she? Mm. I'd forgotten about that. I remember thinking as a child that it was the most single coolest trick you could do was to have as a side character in one book. Who else does it? Sarah Dessen in her YA. Have you ever read any Sarah Dessen YA? I have not. Oh, Where should I start? Just... While you remember, I want to mention that I believe, um, I think Grace and Vaughan make cameos in You Don't Have to Say You Love Me by Sarah Manning. Yes, they do! Because I can't remember the name of the heroine of the novel, but her sister works at Skirt. That's exactly what happens. Yes, and you're, you're so thrilled with yourself. What I like are ones that you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily notice. So what I don't like is when it's like, essentially a footnote on you have to, uh, where it's like, oh, you should have read these previous books in order to enjoy it. What I like is when it's just, 
I'm just looking for Sarah Dessen and my kids. And Marion Keys, things like the boy band lads, they show up. Yes, that's what I love when it's like, oh, it's a whole universe. It's a whole universe. And of you do, you, and that is what makes, I think, us feel as readers like this book is for us. No one else could possibly have noticed but us. Exactly. And you're like, I know. I know because I'm in on the story. I live in this world. Sarah, in terms of Sarah Dessen, Lock and Key was the first. So basically, these are, they're kind of American, slightly Jacqueline Wilson y mid-teens, I would say 14, 14 year old vibes. But the, one of the reasons I love them so much is along with Louise Renison, they were one of the first books that all four of my sisters and we read at vaguely similar times. So my youngest sister would have been about 11 and I would have been about 18, 17, 18 which made me a little bit too old and Flossie a little bit too young, but we were all reading them and talking about them and passing them around. Because there's a so seven years, was spread out over seven years, which meant that when we were kids, there wasn't that, there felt like a big jump. When I was 14 and my youngest sister was six or seven, that was, there, there wasn't much in common between me being 14 and Floss being six. But the, when we first started reading similar books, we would never now read similar books because Florence likes non large non-fiction books about political theory she's very serious she's a very very clever person and as discussed i read mostly teen romances still but there's something magic about that first moment you connect with a sibling i think particularly on a level you think yes you're a person you're a person i can have a conversation with and i imagine like it happens to parents with their kids as well but obviously I don't know about that. I have a godchild and she is 10 now. And the same thing has happened sort of with her, which is that, and she rang me up in the middle of lockdown. And she was like, so I've started writing this novel. I was like, fantastic, please go on. And she gave me the title, which is very good. It's a murder mystery set in a coffee shop about a family reunion gone wrong. And I was just like, somewhere, you started off being really small and now you are 10 and a full person, a full person who can say to me, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I just need to write this scene where Abigail, Abigail's mother and Emily's dad have this fight in a coffee shop, but I just don't know what they could be fighting about. I was like, this is, this is incredible. You've become a person. And with her, we've been, I gave her Robin, Ste- do you know Robin Stevens? Yes. Weird point of trivia. I went to the cinema with Robin Stevens to see Paddington 2. I mean, she's she's a delightful human being. What a nice person to see Paddington 2 with. We all um, wept but together I when Aunt Lucy came. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> but I gave her Robin St- uh, the stack of Robin Stevens books because I, I like to play up to being a godmother, so I like to turn up with a sort of stack of things. I'm really sad. I think this will be the last year she has like a Christmas concert where I can go in like a long fake fur coat and give out toffees and I don't think there won't be one because there is a lockdown I think probably 11 12 you get a bit old a bit old for people turning up in a fur coat and giving out toffees but I have no enjoyed that never no I think I think you can re you re-enjoy it once you're sort of 14 and therefore you can be ironic about it yeah I think 11 to 13 you're probably a bit like why are you here leave me alone I think that's exactly it there'll be a couple of bumpy awkward years and then it'll be a sort of like a hipstery like oh look at my cool godmother I hope so. I'm trying very hard to be cool by being young and living in London. Um, But being able to talk to her about Robin Stevens as an author and to say, I liked this. Did you like that? What did you think was going to happen next? Not in like the way of an adult talking to a child, in the way of two people who enjoyed the same, enjoyed the same media. And so Robin Stevens has been that, 
kind of exciting portal with my goddaughter of saying we both enjoyed this book on similar levels we both enjoyed this book as people reading interesting mysteries and Sarah Desson was that with my sisters where I thought oh we're both enjoying and I think I felt that way about Louise Renison, which we had on tape all the Jordan Nicholson books I loved those books and again I was and a little bit too old the funniest books of all time I nicked them from my then boyfriend's sister and I think we had the same sort of like pseudo sisterly bonding I don't know that my sisters read them but yeah just the the, the joke pile on and the funniness and the way the way she takes things also, seriously but sees everything so hilariously I know, it all, I know it mostly by heart so when I was a kid we didn't really do didn't really do holidays by plane so much we did a lot of driving to France or driving to Italy to camp and we had because I'm sure you know the pain of having a lot of lot of sisters in one car and so we, my mum, we, we would get these, get the Louise Renison books from the library and she read them herself. Oh, hang on. I, Louise Renison did? Louise Renison read aloud all the Georgia Nicholson books. I thought you were going the to say that your mum read them out loud oh, to you in the no, car. No, Louise Renison read them on tape. And that, I think, is the first thing that I can remember my mum and the four of us all enjoying the same. I remember my dad being completely... I think he thought they were funny, but just being completely baffled. I think he'd never had that kind of unparalleled access <laughs> to what teenage girls might be thinking. And I think by that time, he was the parent of two, maybe three teenage girls. And just, is this, is this who you are? <laughs> and as you know, when she goes to the party dressed as a stuffed olive, <laughs> when they practice going into the grocer's shop so they can talk to the boy who turned out to be Tom and Robbie, but she's like, well, jazz knows her onions, don't you, jazz? And just the rehearsed thing of, I go to a girls' school and now I will talk to a boy. I, do, oh I remember God, that I and them all like gathering around in the park and Rosie smoking and just setting fire to herself and you know, trying to be cool and then sort of they just about manage to compose themselves and they're all a bit, you know, upset and a bit cross and then someone says, oh, Rosie smokes quite a lot, doesn't she? Because you've just been like <laughs> steaming away <laughs> and everyone loses it. <laughs> Is that like uncontrollable laughing of being a teenage girl and just like absolutely losing it? Do you know what else has this feeling of teenagehood? It is Tana French's Secret Place. Is that Tana French? Have you read it? that book. Daisy. Okay, so this is the difficult thing about The Secret Place is it's the book of hers I most want to like push into people's hands. I love Tana French. I'm a huge Tana French fan. But it's the book, it's the fifth book in a series. And you get more out of it if you've read the previous ones. But I found it in a junk shop and just read it on holiday and loved it individually. And then I went back and reread it after I'd read the preceding four. And so I just want to, I mean, just read The Secret Place, just read it. It's, it's about four girls, four girls at a boarding school um, and a year before the book starts, a boy from the boys' school has been found murdered on the grounds. Ooh. And there's also this kind of, slightly magic element which isn't which isn't a problem for anyone and it's not it's not magic-y like that it's just magic in the way that it was magic to be a teenage girl and things were possible the sense of like anything being possible in your weird new body and it's just it's a fantastic murder mystery oh wow well, Hannah French writes sort of do you know the secret history yes did you like it I loved it oh you will love Hannah French Hannah writes like Donna Tartt instead of trying to write beautiful 
oblique stories about America was instead writing cop thrillers about Dublin. I think that, because um, I love, I really, really love Donata and Curtis Sittenfeld, and I think they are both, to go back to, you know, they are sort of beautiful and necessary, and there's so much detail, and it's so immersive, and you're expecting something maybe a little grand, a little dry. You know, because The Secret History, I had that edition where it's like, it's black, and it says The Secret History in big letters on it, and I was very, like, Jeez, you know, I, I don't like I don't like secrets and I don't like history. This is not the book for me. <laughs> and then people kept mentioning it and I was like, oh, this book is gonna be a bit but I think actually it was the Brett Easton Ellers connection. I loved um BE as a teenager because he's there's something sort of so adult and trashy and see I nearly didn't read it because I don't like Brett Easton Ellis. I have I've I've got over him. And the idea that in the secret history, every so often a door just like creaks open and you can hear this like shouty party and that's like the rules of attraction coming through. But I'm aware that we are running out of time, which breaks my heart. And I really wanted to talk to you about Eva Ibbotson because I believe you've written a I forward. want to talk about Eva Ibbotson. I want to talk about Eva Ibbotson and so many. I mean, I have this long list of people I wanted to make sure I got in. Eva Ibbotson. I, I love her. I simply love her. When did you meet um, her in, as a reader? <laughs> Oh, tiny, 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 tiny. Because, of course, she's most famous for her children's books. I think I probably read Journey to the River Sea when I was quite little. But I also read The Secret Countess or The Countess Below Stairs. It's got two titles. Oh, because that's the one that I just read because friend of ours and friend of the podcast, Sarah Manning, is also a, a big fan. And I think we found a copy of The Secret Countess and... Oh, you have 120 people, about 120 people who love you very much and a hedgehog called Alexander. Honestly, when she says that to Olive, I'm just like, it is such a, God, everything about it is so lovely. I can't, when she's washing her hair in the lake. And I love as well that it, this sort of very, very idyllic um, Joyce Lancaster Brisley, almost wild, is tempered by the bullshit insanity of the eugenicist story. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful romance about eugenics. <laughs> I mean, against eugenics. The whole thrust of the book is there are perfections you can only achieve by eliminating all these things that are beautiful and worthwhile. I love that one. And I love A Song for Summer, which I wrote the new introduction for last year last year this year's gone on for so long it might have been this year i think it was last year um which is another very gorgeous romance about the nazis which i guess is what happens when you get a very talented writer of romances who <laughs> leaves leaves a leaves a country because the nazis are there um what's interesting of course is that she really looked down on her own romance writing and just did it she said old ladies and people with flu was who she was writing for and honestly if you ever do have flu, I really recommend just reading a lot of Eva Ibbotson. And if you run out of Eva Ibbotson, I really like Laura Wood's books as well, who, she's actually an academic expert on Eva Ibbotson, who then started writing lovely romance novels. I don't know Laura Woods, but I want to. Where, would, where shall I start? She's got a new one out called A Snowfall of Silver, but her first one, which I've forgotten the title of, is so sweet. It's, it's got a black and white mas masquerade ball. It's got, starts with a girl eating a stolen apple in an abandoned library. You know the drill, Daisy, it's all there. Oh, that sounds absolutely wonderful. We've talked, I'm sure, before about Judith Kerr's novels, like pre-Mog and everything, and, you know, not the tiger who came to tea. Oh, I think she, I mean, for me, A Small Person Far Away is, which is the 
no one, so everyone knows when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit, but there's two more books, Bombs on Undainty, which is the second, and A Small Person Far Away. And A Small Person Far Away is one of the most interesting meditations on what it's like to be a refugee, what it's like to be an emigrate, what it's I like to I get the titles confused because I think I read Bombs for Aunt Dainty is the other way around. Um, is that, is a small person far away, is that she's 15 and it starts in London? No, that's Bombs on Aunt Dainty. And then, the, oh, so is that far one... away, she's 30 and married. She's 30 and newly married to... Uh, to a TV, a TV writer who's just got his first big commission and she has to go back to Berlin because her, her mother is ill. Mother has remarried Conrad? Conrad, yes. And I just, there are bits in there that I think about. There's a bit where she's, Conrad, who's this very difficult man. He's, he's very spiky and he's not particularly honest and he's not been very kind to her mother. Or he has in some ways, it's, one of, it's another one of those books where everybody is a person. And there's a part where she goes to his office and what Conrad's job is, he's trying to get compensation for the families of people who died in the concentration camps. And this is 1950, I think. You could date it more precisely because it's lots, there's lots of political stuff in the book. And she's looking through these letters. She's like waiting in his office, just like flicking through the papers on his desk. Cause you know, she's his, he's, she's his stepdaughter and she's just waiting for him to finish. And there's this one about a little girl who has died and there's photographs and she's thinking about how somewhere, and she says something like, and somewhere out there it's 1938 and the trains, the trains that run past my house, the trains that ran past her house were only full of sugar and sugar and goods. And Rachel Birnbaum, age six, was safe asleep in her bed. And I think about that, pretty much that line's kind of constantly ticking around my head, this sense of somewhere out there this little girl is still safe. And in, I think it's in a song for summer, but it might be the Countess. There's, no, it's The Morning Gift, in The Morning Gift by Eva Robertson. There's this wonderful passage where the heroine hears this music and for a minute she thinks it's this, it's this quartet she knew in Vienna. And she looks up and obviously it's just a recording. And she says, because the past was the past and Bieberstein was dead. And it's so brutal and I think what I'm very drawn to, particularly with Judith Carr and also with these other Eva Robertson, is this sense of, and also a weird comparison, but Penelope Mortimer, who wrote yeah. Pumpkin Eater, this sense of what is the past and what is true, what is true and what is dreams and whether time is kind of, time is not this linear thing, but is this thing that's all happening all at once. And I guess that's the point of novels, isn't it? To try and freeze something in time. You get it a lot with Toni Morrison as well, Laurie Moore. And I think even with food writers like MFK Fisher or Laurie Colwyn, oh, I've completely blanked Octavia Butler. This sense of time as something that's still happening. The past is, the past is kind of continuous. Anyway, that's I why I like Eva Robertson. Everyone should read her. finish without um, picking up on Laurie Colwyn, who I just read this year and just Perfect. fell in love with so hard. And I finished, God, what's wrong with me? I finished Happy All the Time, which might be one of my favourite books of all time. And I remember I was reading it in the bath and I turned the last page and I just burst into tears because I couldn't bear it ending. That's exactly how I felt about Laurie Moore and Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, which I read. It was probably the last sort of substantial book I read. I've been reading a lot of romances. 
and a lot of lot of poetry and a lot of romances. I think because I'm trying to finish something myself, but also because I just love them. But the last kind of literary book I read was Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? And I just couldn't bear it to be over. I had to go and give it to Tash, who's my family. And I just literally had to be like, you need to read this so that we can talk about it. And you need to read this so that it's not finished. I think, I don't know, I tend to have two responses to books I really love, which is either you need to read this so that we can talk about it, or as with Brother of the More Famous Jack, you have never read this. No one but me has ever read this. For a long time, for instance, I was really reluctant to talk about I Capture the Castle with anyone. I couldn't believe that anyone had ever read it but me. Um, Cold Comfort Farm, I feel like that about. We have always lived in the castle. I'm trying. Dor all of Dorothy Sayers' books. We didn't talk about Jill Mansell, except to kind of reference her constantly in reference uh, to other things. Yes. Do you have a favourite Jill Mansell? Well, I was talking about this with my sister. So when I did Caroline's podcast, Sentimental Garbage, for the first time, we talked about a book called Millie's Fling by Jill Mansell, which is, I think, the kind of quintessential. But I think Fast Friends which is her first maybe, which has a kind of Jilly Cooper-ish sprawl to it, but is still quite suburban and detailed. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same thing we've been talking about all the way through, the sense of being able to open up and look at the tiny details. I, I always feel like, that, like I can take the tiny little twiglets packet out of the cupboard and put it back, you know? I know off by heart. And I think all the time about Lulu's silvery hair and Camilla's Oh my makeover. God, the silver and gold way. And when, and when Camilla gets the extension, she's like, it's sensational. And she's got silver and gold waves that tumble. Oh my God. And uh, when, she th when Camilla throws the thing of flowers at oh, Jack. At right the at dinner the party, at the very beginning. At the dinner party. And it's the roses in the bowl. And she says, no, you have them, darling. And she throws the glass, throws the thing. Oh God, it's just, and there's so much in it. I was saying to my sister, see it literally yesterday there's so much to unpack there's a whole thing when nico do you remember nico the rock star yes because not to do a spoiler but i believe he's an important part of the the ending the happy ending he is but like he gets married to this girl called caroline he meets in a laundrette who pretends that he's not famous and she pretends that she's got no idea he's not famous and then ros has this baby who dies and Nicolette. it's just Nicolette Sounds and then like Lulu Nicolette. does a fundraiser and meets this guy Mac who is a photographer and he's really cruel to her and the golfer mm. the golfer who not to do spoilers and the thing is this book came out in I don't know 1991. Camilla adopts the a golf. severely disabled son. Yes whose mother doesn't want him and then she falls in love with another man whose wife comes to attack her. Do you remember that? Yes! And she breaks into the house and uh, she says something really horrible about her adopted, very disabled son and Camilla just takes it on a stride and then she starts a modelling agency. Yeah, oh my God, I forgot Sheridan's. about that. When, she's, when she starts Sheridan's and like there's Gus, the little girl with red hair and she's just playing the piano. I mean, Fast Friends. There we go. There's a, there's a solid recommendation. Is there anybody else I wanted to recommend? Oh, I know. This is the book to end on. Ross Gay's The Book of Delights. Right? Go and buy it now. It's coming out in an English edition quite soon, I think. But if you have to get it from America, get it from America. Ross Gay is the most fantastic American poet. And every day, I think for a year, he made himself write an essay, sometimes very short, about something that he found delightful in that day. That sounds like heaven. You know J.B. Priestley's delights. Yes, it's kind of inspired by J.B. Priestley, I think. But like, it's, and it's this very interesting thing about what it is to be a black man in America experiencing delight and whimsy. And there's this beautiful thing about him wearing a lilac, lilac crocheted scarf. And it's just, and there's this beautiful essay where he's talking to a friend who's planting trees for the city. 
and uh, he says to the friend, so when will these nut trees be in, when will the nut trees bear fruit? And the friend says, oh, about 200, 250 years. And it's just this like, all these small delights that build up. Oh, and that brings you back anyway. to your point about time and writing and that, you know, in, in 250 years, there are nuts. There are nuts. There will be nuts. And there will be a record somewhere of the feeling that existed at the planting of, of kind of hopefulness and this kind of sense of a future, which I guess is usefulness. The usefulness of writing comes from setting something down. Huge thanks to Ella. Midnight Chicken is published in paperback on the 31st of December. Nigella Lawson called it a manual for living and a declaration of hope. It's gorgeous. It also brilliantly requires more butter than any recipe book I've ever met. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Whitebooked. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. It helps new listeners to find the podcast. Find the list of all the books mentioned by Ella on acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from James Joyce. Writing in English is the most ingenious torture ever devised for sins committed in previous lives. The English reading public explains the reason why. See you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.